This morning, as we continue through our series going through uh, the Gospel of Mark, we are in Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 32 to 45 uh, this morning. And before we come to a time where we, where we read here, before we, uh, before we, we, we listen, let's pray. Let's pray for the Spirit to be at work among us this morning, for without the Spirit of God present and active and working here, then nothing will get done. Let's pray. Lord, we truly are helpless people. Uh, even our best efforts uh, are so many times fruitless. And that applies inclu- here also including uh, this time of listening. Uh, so often our minds wander. So often we are just don't want to listen. So many times we can't even fully understand everything either. No, no matter where we are, no matter who we are, with your spirit, we ask and beg that your spirit would be moving this morning, going with the word, going out with it here, giving blessing to it, causing it to be planted deep in our hearts, causing us to understand to have ears that truly can hear and tilling the hearts of our soil to make it fertile so that your spirit would be then nurturing that seed of the word and causing it to flourish and blossom into faith in our hearts and action in our lives and correct thinking in our minds and worship in our souls as well. Lord, all that applies to the man who's preaching there here this, or this morning as well. Without your spirit, nothing gets done. Be with us in this time, and would Jesus become more beautiful to us, more believable than he was before. We pray this in his name. Amen. This is Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32, going on to verse 45. This is the word of God. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles." And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And he said to them, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with a baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. 
But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. Our society has a mixed relationship with authority and power. On the one hand, it's something to be desired. But on the other hand, it's something to be deplored or to be wary of. And the issue comes down to its exercise. Who has the power? Who is exerting their authority? And so authority and power aren't wrong, nor are they evil. They are actually embedded within the very fabric of creation. God himself is the ultimate, the highest authority over all things as the sovereign. And he has bound certain relationships as he's created them in this world in the context of authority. All authority is derived from God. Authority from governments, authority within households, authority within uh, even your, your jobs. It's from God. And the problem, though, arises, though, with power and authority when it is misused and when it is abused. Right? Power that is exercised in ways that are selfish, in ways that exalt the one who wields the power. Uh, abusing authority by using it in ways that exalts the person that has it there. Having a willingness to hold on to their power at all costs. Now our minds probably go to government officials and politicians, to tyrannical people in certain positions, to bosses, to leaders and corporations looking to solidify their influence. And when we think in those terms, it may create some distance between us and them. But many of us are also, though, in positions of authority, just not to the same degree. Do you have people who are working under you? Do you have children? Then you too have authority. How about people who not just work for you, but maybe with you? Is there anyone that you would consider to be a rival? There are power dynamics at play in those relationships too. And if you don't have authority, is that something you desire? And is that desire that you have, is it righteous? What is your purpose in wanting it? So we can't just remove this though also from the context of the church. There is authority and power within the church, not only from God himself, but also granted to individuals or the offices Uh, by God. There are ministry structures that we have and people who are serving uh, within them or under one another. And so the problems of the use and abuse of power and authority don't just take place in certain echelons of society and government. They take place in our own communities, in our own workplaces, in our own families, and in our own churches. And it's what Jesus speaks to in this passage here. Issues of rivalry, issues of power grabs, issues of authority, even amongst the disciples then. But he doesn't abolish the authority and power. He doesn't just flatten out all the social structures to make it a purely egalitarian model. He redefines how they're to be used. And it starts with him. He does so not only as the example but as the one who gives himself up in order to transform us into new people who care more about people themselves than the power. So our main point this morning is that Jesus laid aside authority for our sakes so that we can do the same for others. 
Jesus laid aside his authority for our sakes so that we can now do the same for others. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take an overview of this whole passage. We're going to look over it here. And then we're going to look at some specific applications of that overarching principle here that Jesus is bringing out. And so this passage begins with Jesus and his disciples going up to Jerusalem as they've been doing for, for, for quite a number of weeks now. Verses 32 and 34. They're going up to Jerusalem and they're going, well, particularly Jesus is going with an intent and a resolve in his purpose. There is something about the way that he is carrying himself as, as he's going. And that inspired both awe amongst the people. It says that some were amazed. And also dread. It says that some were afraid. He's going with this determination up to Jerusalem. He came to suffer, all right? He to undergo immense sorrow and anguish, and he is heading towards that goal with incredible resolve. He's going up there to accomplish the freedom of his people, the salvation of his people. He is doing so to rise again in glory. That is a seriousness that he had, this intense seriousness that was almost like this aura around him that left people either in dread or in just amazement. And that's the seriousness that Jesus still has today. He still has this heart of love, but a driven and a relentless heart. Relentless in his drive to restore sinners and to redeem the world. There is an awe-filled sense about him, an awe-filled determination. We could even say an awe-full determination in every sense of that word, not only being full of awe of, of his determination, but also awful in his determination because he is singularly set upon that, to save and to make things right within the world. Why else would he go to the cross? But we get hints, though, also as he's going here to, to the cross, as he's marching to Jerusalem. We get hints, though, still along the way right now of how he redefines power and authority. We've read this three times before. This is the third time that we've come to, this sec or to a section that's similar to this, where Jesus talks about along the way to Jerusalem of how he will be handed over, how he will be crucified, how, will he, how he will rise again. All these times referring to his impending death. And here in this third time, just like in the two top prior times, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. And when he calls himself the Son of Man, he's hearkening back to, to Deuteron or Deuteronomy, to Daniel chapter 7, which is a vision there of one like the Son of Man coming down, being presented before the Ancient of Days. This one, this Son of Man, giving authority, given glory, given a kingdom. And all nations, all peoples, all languages then are to serve him, it says. He has, been, he has given ultimate authority, heavenly authority by the Ancient of Days, by God. But yet at the same time here, we have Jesus calling himself the Son of Man with all of the baggage, all of the, the, the freight that that term comes with and juxtaposing it here to his suffering and his death. Now, who was in control as he would suffer and die? Who was in control as he hung on the cross? He was. Jesus. And yet he underwent it for the sake of his people that he came to save. He laid aside his power, he laid aside his authority for the benefit of others, of those he came to die for. And in, with that context here, now James and John 
two of the disciples, they come to Jesus with this particular request. Jesus, can we ask you a question? Will you, will you do whatever we ask of you? How about, how about you, 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 you give us a, a spot at your right hand and your left hand in glory? What they're asking for is the positions of honor. Jesus, when you are in your, your glory, when you're sitting on your throne there, can we be on your right and your left? Can we be the closest to you? Can we be in the positions of best authority, of greatest power and honor and glory? What they're doing here, I mean, do you understand what they're doing? They're trying to get a one-up on everyone else. They're trying to stake a claim of preeminence and power. Something to separate them from the other ten. But here's the thing, they already had preeminence. The closest disciples that we've seen over and over, it's, it's, it's three of them. It's Peter, James, and John. They are the ones that he always brings with them. He brought them up with the, in the, the transfiguration here. They're the disciples closest to Jesus. They've already got, in one sense, uh, preeminence over the others. But James and John, they go to Jesus actually looking for more power. They're trying to almost like separate themselves from Peter. Now, why would they do that when they already have such a great position? Because the, the desire for power and position and authority never has enough. In fact, it's been like that all the way from the beginning. Adam and Eve, when they were in the garden, they had everything they wanted. They had all the power and dominion, authority over the earth here, and animals, everything that they, they, God had put them as kings in his stead on the earth. They had everything. They had all the power they could ever want, all the authority they could ever want. But what was the pull of the temptation when they went to the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? When they were reaching out and grasping for the fruit, was it because the fruit itself was beautiful? Or what was it? It was the temptation from the serpent. They saw what it held out to them, or what they thought it held out to them, was wonderful and beautiful. They were reaching up to grasp power. They were reaching up to make themselves like God, weren't they? The thing is, we have the same DNA. We have the same spiritual DNA. And the same weaknesses run through us too. When does the desire for power end? When is enough finally enough? It's driven kings, it's driven conquerors and emperors mad until they have finally met their end. It does the same for everyday people in their everyday positions. The desire for power and authority will ask and it will, it will never stop until it gets what it demands, comfort and pleasure that's aimed at the self. And when does that come to an end? But the thing is, though, the, the other disciples, the other ten weren't any different than James and John, except maybe in their own brazenness. They're, they're, they're not any different. They are livid when they start to get word of this conspiracy that James and John had been starting to, to do. They, they, they hear about this and they go, they're, they're angry at them. Now, seeing other people acquire power reveals our hearts. Are we glad for them? Or are we jealous? Are we congratulatory of their new position? Or are we bitter? There's a difference between seeking power and willingly accepting it. Because the motives are what matters. Is it selfishly seeking? Or is it accepting with humble servitude? Well, what we see here amongst all 12 disciples is this. We see rivalry. We see rivalry that's motivated by jealousy. Now, we know just 
just, we know extremely little about some of the, of the disciples. Some of them, it's just a name, right? Thaddeus, right? Bartholomew. We just know, uh, know the names of, of a few. And, and a few, we have just snippets of a few brief conversations. And already we've noticed here that there's an inner circle also of, among the disciples. Now, perhaps... Perhaps it's because some of them were more gifted, maybe some of them were more talented or astute than the others. If nothing else, just simply they were recognized more. And certainly these, the, the disciples, there were some that, disciples that were closer with Jesus, Peter, James, and John. But instead of looking towards each other, though, and being concerned with the mission that had bound them together, they were locked in rivalry with one another. They were, they were trying to increase in standing over each other. And that's what working against one another instead of working with one another or for one another does. It pulls you into jealous rivalry. It reveals your insecurity over someone else's gifts or power. It leads to you trying to solidify your own even at the expense of others. Once again, what's at the center? It's the person, the individual. And Jesus, though, then gathers his disciples when all, his, all this, this fracas is going on. He gathers his disciples and he redefines power and authority in his kingdom. He does that in, in verses 42 and 45. He distinguishes it from the Gentile authorities and their exercise of power. He says, you know how they do it. They let everyone know about their position. They're flaunting it. They're waving it about. They're basking in it. They are even exploiting others to their own advantage with it. That's kind of what James and John were doing. They were trying to exploit Jesus in order to elevate themselves. And what's it do? It breeds jealousy. It breeds breeds rivalry. What you can do to hold something over another. It's almost like two siblings in this sort of jealous rivalry Uh, with one another. One of them has something really good and then lets the other one know about the good thing that they have. Ha ha, I have this remote control car. Ah, I want that. And they're showing it to them. Ha ha, I've got it right now. And then the other one says, well, I'm going to take it or I'm going to get my own or I'm going to have more time. Ha, look what I've got. I've got it now. Oh, and it's going back and forth, back and forth in this, this, this rivalry. And pretty soon it doesn't even matter about the car itself anymore. It's just about who has it and who can pull one over on the other. The end goal is to gain power and to let everyone know what you've got. It makes it all about yourself. And people suffer as others fight and reach out to attain power. But Jesus says, that's not so among you. You are to be a servant. You're to be a slave. I would have been shocking. I mean, that's shocking anyways. You're going to be a slave. But that was shocking particularly to these people where there were slaves and servants all around them. They were the lowest classes in society. But it wasn't just their class in society that, was, that would have been so shocking here. It was their role in society. Because the actions of a servant or a slave are oriented towards another. It's serving another. That's what they do, right? That's what, it, that's what it, the definition of being a servant is, Right? They don't work for themselves. Anything they have isn't for themselves. It is a service. It's service to another. And that is how Jesus redefines power and authority. He says, it's not about yourself. It's not about what you get from it. That's not the goal. The goal of it here is serving other people. It's about others. 
Is that how you view whatever authority that you may have? Whatever position that you might be in? Is that your motivation for accepting power? I mean, even that word accepting, that's so different than looking for power, isn't it? And it's not about recognition in your, in your, your position. It's about service. Now, if you were totally anonymous but still served others with the authority that you were given, would you still be okay with that? Recognition is not the way that Jesus says authority is to be used. It's not for ourselves. It's to serve. It's aimed at the other. And amid all of this here, too, going back before, he addresses James and John after they they talk to him. They make their requests. And he shows them what it looks like to lay aside privilege and power. Now, he's going to Jerusalem, and he says he will conquer, uh, he will conquer and be lifted up. He will be exalted. That's what he's going to do when he goes to Jerusalem. He is going to accomplish the salvation of, of, of his people. He's going to be lifted up. He's going to be exalted. But you know what? That's going to look drastically different than what the disciples have in mind. He's going to be lifted up, but he's going to be lifted up on a cross before being lifted up into glory. And it's going to involve the Son of Man suffering the wrath of God the Father. He says, this is what I'm going to do. Are you able? Can you follow? He says, I'm going to drink the cup. Not a cup of celebration. He says, I'm going to drink the cup of the Father's wrath for sin. It's going to be a cup of judgment that I'm given. There's an Old Testament idea of of the cup of God's wrath being the foaming cup of judgment that's given to the enemies and to be drunk all the way down to the very dregs. Jesus says, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take that cup and I'm going to drink it down to the very last drop. The cross is where he was, about, where he was going to go and to drink that cup that was prepared for him. But he also says, I'm going to undergo a baptism. And baptism here... It's a baptism of judgment. Now we have, you know, the idea of baptism going through waters. We have a few, again, Old Old Testament pictures here. A flood of God's wrath going out across the world, of God's judgment here in a sort of baptism, water. You have the Red Sea. You have Israel passing through the Red Sea and coming through unscathed. But then you have what? You have Egyptians going through the waters and they suffer judgment. See, Jesus is referring to his impending passing through the judgment waters of God's wrath being plunged through them. And he shows just how low, how far down he would go as a servant. He would debase himself. He would lower himself all the way into the deepest hell to rescue sinners. Done for the sake of others, done for his people. His servitude, his taking wrath was to redeem his people. And James and John, though, so naively say, well, we can follow. Either they don't understand or they have overinflated views of themselves. But Jesus says, you're going to follow eventually. Not in a redemptive way. What I'm doing is special. You're not going to be repeating Jesus' finished work. He says, you're going to follow me as, as, a, as a disciple. You're going to follow in my path. And the path of a disciple isn't any different than the path of a master. And growing as a disciple means, uh, growing as a disciple of Jesus means growing more and more accustomed to that. 
The disciples would learn firsthand what it meant to serve. That power is wielded for the sake of others and the gospel, and it involves suffering. But even still, though, Jesus continues to show his own servitude and acceptance of his position in in this point here, in this conversation. He says that granting the position at my right or left, that's not mine to give. That's not my job. That's actually, if I were to do that, I would be overstepping my, my bounds of authority right now. Because that applies to my only, or that, that only belongs to my father alone. He has that privilege. He is actually giving me a people, and I'm carrying out his will of salvation to die for them and to redeem them. See, even right here in this conversation, he's showing his own submission to the father. Not in some sort of hierarchical way of of the persons of the Trinity here, but he's talking about willingly, though, taking possession, or sorry, willingly taking a position of servitude and submission in the accomplishment of redemption. He's going to submit himself to the Father to carry out his will for the plan of salvation for his people. Jesus is, in one sense, showing them the way of humility, even at this divine level. Again, it leads him to say those words, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus himself demonstrates what this means as the Son of Man with the highest authority, exercising it on behalf of the lowest of, of sinners. See, when he went to Jerusalem, who would it be actually as right and left? Who was it? It wasn't James and John. It was not of anyone of significance or importance. Who was it that was on his right and his left when he went to Jerusalem? Two thieves on a cross. He would lower himself so that he would, with the least, with people with the least possible status, with thieves, so that these sinners, that these thieves would be lifted up with him. His servitude, his giving himself over in abasement here, was to bring thieves and sinners into glory. Not to make people rich and powerful, but to show who is it though? Who is it that I associate with? What is my way? It's the way of the lonely, the lowly. And I came to die for the lowly. He gave himself as a ransom for many. He has pulled us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into a new kingdom with new ethics. And to imprint upon us our, on, on our hearts by the spirit whom he gave to us. So that we would grow and we would see the beauty of this new way of servitude, of humility. To serve others actually with joy. To see it as a pleasure to serve others. Just as he does. Just as he did. It was a joy for him going to the cross. Even though it cost him so much. It was full of anguish. And seeing other people thrive is what it means to love your neighbor. If the Spirit is making us into more other-oriented people, then our joy becomes seeing others helped and others served. How is the church countercultural? It's by how it approaches and uses authority and power. And there are all sorts of implications with that. And I want to touch on just a few this morning here on how we approach this idea of use of power and authority. I guess chances are, again, you either have some level of power or authority in, in some relationship here, or you desire it. And what is your aim for wanting it? What is your aim for using it? Is it for your sake? Is it for others? And no matter if it's at work, 
as a parent, whatever here, the purpose of it is still the same. It's service for others. It's for their benefit. And that's how it's to be used. But we can think about it for authority in the home, of a parent's authority over their children. Now, that still involves service for their benefit, even though we think, well, I'm the parent. I'm supposed to raise and train them, of course. You do have authority in how you, and how that's supposed to be exercised over your children. But it's not supposed to be exercised for your comfort. It's a service to train them. To train them for their good. Now kids, you may not always see it like that, or you may not always understand it in those ways, but that's the purpose. And parents, though, also, it all, it becomes, if it becomes about you and fulfilling your own desires... That's not servitude. The same goes for spouses, for husbands and wives. In the, uh, the, the model that we see, in the, particularly in the New Testament, where God set forth of, of husbands having authority over, over the home there. Husbands, love your wives. And just because God has ordained a position of headship in the home, that doesn't mean that it's about you. What are you called to do? You're called to serve your wife. You're called to lay aside your authority to serve and love your wife. And your, your, your authority is to be exercised for her benefit. Exerting power for your comfort and your in, in, indulgence and for your desires is a use of authority that is contrary to Jesus. We can think about work authority. Now, if, if, if you have authority at work, you're in a position for the betterment of the company. You have employees that are under you. But it's still a service. You're not, you're not just serving the company. You're serving those people who are under you. How do you treat them? Do they see the, the power ethics of Jesus and his kingdom in how you speak to them? In how you meet with them? In how you email them? What are the causes of your disagreements that you have at work? Is it jealousy? Is it trying to solidify your power? Maybe we could think about further here. Let's think about this. Let's think about political authority. Let's think about this in the, the political and the civic realm. What do you look for in your politicians? The civic sphere may not be the kingdom of God, but what are the proper ethics that you like to see as kingdom citizens? And do the people whom you look up to politically, do they exhibit authentic servitude in their office? Are their actions and their desires and their motivations as best as you can tell? Are they consistent with serving others and not serving themselves? How do they conduct themselves against rivals? But we can even take this one step further though also here about this idea of exerting power a public power in society, right? There's this idea amongst some amongst some some circles about we need to mobilize via politics. But as Christians, though, is, is positioning ourselves publicly for power in society, is that what we're called to do? Is that what we read of with this Christ who laid aside his power and authority and privilege for the sake of others? Is that part of the church's role? See, if the church seeks power, first of all, at what cost? At what cost is it seeking power? And according to whom? Who defines that? Again, it's got to be Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who defines what power looks like. we got to be following after him. And our primary call is, is to serve in society, not to try to snatch and grab and gain power. 
Right? The power and authority can't change hearts, can it? I tell you this, our service, our self-sacrifice is the most countercultural witness that we could ever have. Because we get to bear witness to a Jesus who drank the cup, who underwent baptism. We serve and bear witness and are citizens of a heavenly kingdom of, that's controlled and ruled by the Lamb who was slain. That's what we get to do. But we need to also think about this for the church as well. For one thing, we can talk about, think about this with ministry within the church. And that's not only formal, but it's also informal. It's ordained and non-ordained. All ministry within the church is service. And service means not seeking recognition because that's not what it's about. And for those of you who are, who are serving in leadership roles, if there was no recognition and you served anonymously, would you be okay with that? Inevitably, though, rivalry also finds itself within the church. That's just what happens when you have churches that are full of sinners. Sinners, sinners who minister alongside one another. It happened in the early church at Paul in, in Philippians 4 had to write to uh, the church in Philippi about Yodia and Syneche. Get along, girls. Get along, ladies. And we need to believe that it can happen to us too. And perhaps it does. It's easy to use our leadership authority in ways that we may believe are justified, but then we dismiss others and we regard them as servants as to how we want things to be done and that's not the way of Jesus, is it? And sometimes rivalry exists because someone is jealous of the gifts of another and they want to protect their own power and status. Again, that's not the way of Jesus. When we serve, who are we looking to? When we serve, who are we reflecting? And more specifically here, because it's pertinent for us, let's consider elders. Myself here, first of all, as a teaching elder, as a pastor, as a minister, that, this is for me also. This is for me just as much as anyone else. My call is to be a servant to you, a servant as a shepherd, a servant as a minister of word and sacrament. And I, in my office, am given authority. But it's a self-sacrificial authority. It's one of service, of service to you, not to take and it's a calling that I take very highly. It's a calling that I take very seriously. It is not about me. But unfortunately, there are some places that have had pastors where it has become about them. And I want you to know, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but if that does ever become the case here, you don't have to suffer under my power or theirs. I'm accountable. I'm accountable to other elders. I'm accountable to the other pastors and elders in our presbytery, in the Pacific Northwest Presbytery. There are places where you can go if you were ever to feel that this guy is, this guy is on a power trip. And I'm not saying this to scare you. I'm not saying that it's going to happen. I hope you realize that. But I want us to know that if we have these deep theologies of sin and how it affects everyone, then I'm not exempt from any of that either. Friends, I'm telling you this here so that you don't have to suffer under one man's self-centered power. Because that's not the way of Jesus. And in whatever situation there, Jesus cares. But it's also pertinent to us here, as we consider new ruling elders, as we were praying about last week. 
Right? Elders have authority in the church. Elders have authority that is delegated to, to them from Christ, and they are to exercise it in his name in the same way here, that self-sacrificial way, the others-oriented way. And as you, when that time eventually comes, you will be voting to put them in positions of authority over you. Now, the heart of the elder's call, that heart is being a shepherd. It's a shepherd. An elder is a shepherd, and shepherds serve the sheep. That's what they do. It's not about administration. Don't look for administrators. The elders aren't a board of directors. Don't look for board skills or corporate leadership savviness. Elders are shepherds. Look for shepherds. And so as you pray for those men who are going through the process, pray for hearts of service to continue to be inculcated in them. They've always been, already had some, some shepherding uh, qualities recognized in them, but pray that those would continue to be manifest and grow in them. Look for that. Observe how they serve. Discern how they are approaching the office. Are they desiring it and its authority or its power? Or are they accepting the office out of love for the, for the church and a love for you as sheep? Our approach to authority and power must be shaped by the self-giving Christ. We are transformed by him as we encounter him, as we receive him, and as we commune with him, which we'll do here as we come to the table. This is a time where he communes with us by his spirit in these elements here. In one sense, that we are, are lifted up into the heavenly places where he is seated right now in his authority. And he is sealing to us once again as we receive them. He is sealing to us once again the promise of his redemption that is given by the Son of Man who hung on a cross with thieves and sinners and who seats them in glory. Let's pray. Lord God, we have to give you thanks for your self-giving nature, for you laying aside your power and authority, Lord Jesus, and the privilege that you have for the sake of others, that you came to serve and not to be served. That is the only way that we are part of your kingdom. Change our perspectives then on what it means for us to desire authority and power, how we use it, to even perhaps see, see that we have authority in, in ways that we didn't before, and to be changed by Jesus, to look to him not only as our example of what that looks like, but as the one who actually does change us. Make us servants so that the world would take note that we are a people who love to serve and love to give, and pour ourselves out, because you, God, have done that for us. Prepare us as we come to the table shortly here. In Jesus' name, amen.